and welcome to the Women in Archaeology podcast, a podcast about, for, and by women in the field. My name is Chelsea Slotten, and I'll be your host for the episode. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Yvonne Chorlin, probably mispronounced that, and she can correct me um, later, uh, but we'll be talking with her about her work on scattered remains. Filling out the panel today are Emily Long and Kirsten Lopez. Thanks so much for being here, everybody. Very happy to be here, and we're very excited to talk with you, Yvonne. Oh, yeah, and so, you totally nailed the name, by the way. Very good. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, Yvonne, our audience is not as lucky as we are because we've been communicating a little bit behind the scenes. Um, so, can you just start by giving a little intro and kind of like who you are, what you do in archaeology, and then we'll start asking you some questions. I'm not currently in archaeology. Let's put it that way. Um, I left archaeology about 10 years ago because it was killing me. So let's just put that out there. And I'm sure, you know, anybody who's currently doing um, consulting or conservation archaeology um, field work will know what I'm talking about. Um, yeah, we've all been there. Oof. Oh, yeah. yeah, there comes a certain age where you're just like, do I want to do this when I'm 60? And my knees are already get, getting bad. My lower back already hurts. I'm already up to eight Advil a day. Do I really want to continue doing this? Probably not. <laughs> So <laughs> I escaped and uh, I transitioned into another career, which is research administration. So I'm currently working in higher ed as a grants and research facilitator. What does what the heck does that mean? That means that I I service I provide services for academics, um, tenure tracked and tenure. Anybody who wants to do research. So whether they're just starting out, they're emerging researchers, or they've been doing this for 30 years and they're unfamiliar with the grant scheme or what have you, anything in there, primarily um, I focus on grant applications, giving editorial support and feedback to grant applications. And then even after they've been awarded money, how do they spend that money? How do they hire students? Where do they get their <laughs> equipment? Anywhere along that spectrum, that falls within my bailiwick now. Nice. And grant, yeah. Grants are complicated, and it's like basically running your own little business. Like, oh my gosh, yes, it's not it totally just the research. is that. Yes, and it's something that you are not taught in academia. Yeah, no, not at all. Very true. Yeah. So That's these poor people, these poor academics that have been, you know, taught how to to research, hopefully, you know, but in a very academic <laughs> sense, and then they're thrown into these jobs where they're expected to not just do research but also to teach to write grants and and spend the money and manage it to hire and supervise students there and and manage this all very well so it's a yeah, very it's... different type context to what they've been taught and what they're used to the training doesn't necessarily match the job absolutely and i think anybody in archaeology can commiserate with that Yes, and we do know that you are still um, doing some some archaeological consulting. So even though you're like, I'm not in archaeology anymore, like I think you are. Um, <laughs> you have a, a great podcast called Scattered that we will be linking to, um, and we're going to be talking a bit about some of the research that you're doing that is related to um, kind of scattered remains and found remains. But some of our listeners might not know what scattered remains are. So what would your um, 
non-super academic explanation for what scattered remains are because we do try and avoid super academic ease oh, on this right. podcast. <laughs> <laughs> scattered remains are pretty much just what it says. It does focus on human remains. So the end point of, I guess, scattered remains in the podcast is to increase the discovery and recovery of human remains, usually in a forensic context, so that more potential forensic evidence can be discovered and recovered in investigations to help positively identify the deceased, help catch the bad guy or guys, figure out what the heck happened so they can close the case and return the deceased to the next of kin. So that is the whole goal of Scattered Remains and the podcast is to increase the discovery and recovery of remains. But because we cannot do research using human remains, um, especially in Scattered, like uh, the body farm, you know, like the the one that everybody knows about down in Tennessee, um, the one that Bill Bass started, Dr. Bill Bass started. Um, that is a yeah, so fenced off quickly. body farm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Can you just explain what a body farm is? We have mentioned it on one or two other episodes, but um, it might not be something that everyone knows what it is. Right. So um, the, the layman term body farm, I mean, it's, it's just, it, it is very, you know, it, it's a crude farm. Um, crude way of, of saying that it's a decompositional facility. A lot of, as far as I know, the one in Tennessee was originally uh, created to study decomposition. At that time, mm -hmm. nobody really knew the process of decomposition, that it was huh. even a thing. Um, Bill Bass would tell stories of how he would be called out, um, you know, by law enforcement or, you know, whoever, um, because they had found some human remains. And he would say, oh, yeah, skeletonized. This is probably, I don't know, 10 years old or something like that. Turns out it's 200 years old. They, oh. they just had no concept of the decompositional process and where it factored into postmortem interval or time since death or, or anything like that. So that's, as far as I understand, the reason why they started the decompositional facility in Tennessee, AKA a body farm. Now, there are lots of these body farms uh, that now exist around the world. I think there's 13, if memory serves, one of which is in Canada. And that's the researcher I'm currently working with, um, but we'll get into that in a minute. Um, so the thing is that these decompositional facilities usually use human um, cadavers. They are donated to the facility to study within the facility's boundaries. And the boundaries are usually uh, delineated by fences to keep scavengers out, to keep people out. Mm -hmm. However, with scattered remains, usually the remains are scattered because of scavengers. Right. So you cannot do this research, number one, on humans, because then you'd be scattering human remains all over the countryside. <laughs> and even though they're for research purposes, somebody could find something that you have not found and report it to the police. And then, you know, the, the chaos of, you know, a possible forensic investigation ensues when no crime has been committed and it's just for research. Um, but also, if you're doing this within a decompositional facility, then you're keeping out the very factor that you want to research, the scavengers. Mm -hmm. And so we have to do that very much outside um, of the decompositional facility. So we use human analogs, usually pigs, 
Oh, that makes sense. Yeah. Okay. So yeah. I actually had um, a professor in university who was um, a bioarchaeologist. Um, and he would always, all summer, he would have barbecues and make like um, T-bones and spare ribs. And I'm a vegetarian. I don't actually know what all the various different meat with bones in it, but meat with bones in it. And then he would just kind of like throw them into one particular garden in his back um, backyard and then would have us all over to excavate that bed and look in the rest of his garden in spring to see where they all ended up. (laughs) So is that like fancier, but kind of like that? Kind of, sort of. I mean, yeah, a a lot of the... The initial research was done in archaeological contexts. Um, a lot of it, like that, I looked up for uh, my master's thesis was out of Africa, because oh. the early hominids, um, like um, South Africa, there was a lot of cave remains. Well, how did mm-hmm. all these human remains end up in caves? And they're commingled, and there's a whole whack of them. And like, what the heck is going on there? Well, the the studies and the research showed that. Um, a leopard would climb up in a tree with a human that they had, you know, found, killed, whatever. And leopards like to pull up their, their catches into the tree to kind of store and keep it away from other predators and scavengers. But that tree was over a cave. And so as the body decomposed, as the leopard scavenged that carcass, the remains then fell into the cave and repeated. And the, the mother probably taught their, her kittens to do the same thing. They all used the same tree. And so over the course of time, all these human remains started to accumulate in this cave. And so a lot of the um, early pathonomic research, a lot of the early scattered remains research was archeological. Okay, and just for listeners, taphonomy is basically what happens to you after death. So, um, yeah, the process from organic to inorganic, that ashes to ashes, dust to dust sort of thing. Yeah, Yeah. it's it's the process that every organic thing takes to become inorganic. So, when things get gross and squishy. Yeah, and taphonomy can also apply to the the rest of the archaeological record as well. So it's the the things that happen afterward. Absolutely. To create an archaeological site. So you'll use the, you'll hear the same term in in slightly different contexts. So So I think that's our vocab word for the day, taphonomy. Taphonomy, yes. Smelled with a PH, of course. And so when you were doing your master's work, um, were you putting pigs up in trees to kind of see where they would go? No, I had them on the ground. Okay. So what were you specifically looking at in your master's research then? I was looking, I was trying to find patterns in the way that that things were scattered. Uh, Because that's the big thing. When, When some, when a, a carcass, whatever, um, is, is put out in an outdoor context. There are so many factors involved and so many places and that, you know, the remains could be scattered different ways. It's trying to find a pattern in all of that to help us narrow down where to look for the remains. And presumably those patterns will vary depending on like where you are, what scavenging predators you have in the area what 
season it is, what the environment is, um, or does that not have as much of an impact? We think, but we're not sure because there is an extreme paucity of research on this topic. So while you can say, oh yeah, there's a pattern in this. Well, I think so. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, our research so far says, yeah, we think so. But so much how more do you has to be done. How do you track, and you may get into this, I don't know, but uh, how do you track the remnants? Like, you know, say a smaller animal likes to run off with, say, you know, part of the hoof or uh, an internal piece versus like a larger animal might take off with a limb, you know, um, how assuming we're not putting air tags on these. Right. (laughs) Um, But like, is there some sort of way of tracking that or just using cameras or like going out and surveying regularly? I'm just curious as to to how that's done, because I feel like that's probably for you guys, like the, the biggest challenge in in kind of, you know, the research generally. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you, you've hit on it right there. I mean, how do you go out and look for this stuff if you don't even know where it's gone in the first place? It, yeah. Um, but that is the problem. I mean, in the human body, there's 206 bones. Are, the likelihood of you finding all 206 bones in a context, in an outdoor context in which the entire skeleton was scattered, very, very remote that you'll recover everything. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, using pigs, very similar. Um, I mean, how do you recover all that? Especially when you're putting out a pig that has been, um, uh, you know, that, that, that's fresh. You know, it's, it's fully, we put clothes on them, fully fleshed. The pig was alive that morning. By the time we put oh, it out wow. a few hours later, the pig is dead. And they're, they're already starting to bloat. So, mm-hmm. I mean, of the, the 200-odd bones in that pig skeleton, how are you going to track all that? You can't. So, again, yeah. that's where the, the patterns comes in. We're looking for patterns. Um, mm-hmm. So the way we can do that, there's a few ways. Number one is to try to develop kind of a, a scavenger profile. So what animals are out there? What animals are scavenging? what are their scavenging behaviors? So if they're going to scatter, if they're going to scavenge, do they like to sit there and scavenge and therefore Mm. the remains won't scatter? Do they like to come and snatch a piece away and then go away and then eat it? Do they like to sit there for a bit and then drag the carcass away? What is the behavior profile of each of these scavenging animals? So, If you like to watch crime shows, they talk a lot about um, the behavior of the killer, the behavior of the victim. We're looking at the behavior of the scavenging animal. Mm -hmm. So that's one way. If we can, and then if we know what scavenging animals are in the area and we can develop a scavenging profile, then we may have a better idea of what happened to the remains. Um, So for instance, if there are a lot of coyotes in the area, um, coyotes tend to do a, a snatch and grab. They'll come in and they'll scavenge for a bit and they'll pull elements away. They can even travel with skeletal elements. Like we're talking miles. And so if there are coyotes in the area, it'd be very difficult to track those remains. 
Mm-hmm. However, um, if it's something like a bear, a bear is more likely to to sit and scavenge. They might eat the entire skeleton, but <laughs> they're more likely to to sit and 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 eat right there. And then you have the like of vultures that just kind of pick off little smaller bits and don't always take off with whole elements like the bear, I guess. But the bear, like you said, would eat the skeleton. Are there, I mean, any animals that you're surprised by their behavior or um, like, I don't know, anything unique that you found so far? There's a little animal uh, called a fisher. They look a bit Mm -hmm. like a a martin. Uh, And yeah. yeah, they are... They will drag stuff that you never, they're like ants. They'll drag <laughs> stuff that's the same size as them. They'll drag it up a tree. Oh, wow. <laughs> They'll drag it into holes in trees. They'll drag it, you know, all over the place. We were finding remains. Yeah, yeah, we were finding remains in trees. And it's like, how the heck did this bone get into this tree? <laughs> <laughs> this very small, cute thing over here. Turns out. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, so are they taking like the valuables on the the dressed up pig as well? Like, are you guys putting like like you said, like with a phone? Are is it mixed in with the bones and whatnot? Sorry, the 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 phone. Oh, I thought. I'm sorry. I thought I heard phone in a tree. My mistake. Oh, bone. 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 Oh well, I feel silly. I was like, so they so they got the individual's phone as well. My goodness! Wow, what a crazy little. I critter. know. They're like magpies. <laughs> what? Oh, I thought maybe it was like a magpie situation type of yeah. thing too. I did. <laughs> yeah, the fishers are very determined. Okay. Yeah. Um, have you ever seen like clothing impact? on um what can be done just because i'm thinking if like your body is in like a tighter fitting like jacket where it might not be as easy to like pull a limb away for example um that that might encourage that same sort of like scavenging in place or scavenging while you know sitting standing um, from what we've seen so far, so we're only putting one layer of clothing. So, you know, a dress, a shirt and pants and, and anecdotally, um, trying to find clothing for pigs. So the pigs we use are 150 <laughs> to 250 pounds. These are big pigs. So number one, human clothing doesn't really fit pigs. Um, number two, trying to find clothing that fits pigs of this size. Like we're talking extra, extra large. Yeah, and then getting the clothing to go all the way and cover the pig. Yeah, I mean, all these logistics that you would never think about. <laughs> so it's rare that a pig is completely covered by the clothing that we put on it. So that's the preface on that. Okay. So the likelihood that we're making it inaccessible, the pig inaccessible through the use of clothing is rare for us. We're just not doing that. And number two... Um, the scavengers usually come after decomposition has already begun. So the, the studies that we're doing in Alberta, we're doing them through the summer. So we put them out in um, July or August. 
and then they're left out for a year. So decomp is, is usually well underway. You know, we can get temperatures okay. up to, to 30, right. 30 degrees Celsius in July and August or more. And so decomposition gets started pretty quick and is well underway by the time the scavenger started. So that the decompositional process will actually uh, move the clothing <laughs> and, 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 you know, cause the, the pants to fall down and the shirt to go up. And there's actually been some studies um, showing that previously uh, people have thought that when the clothing has moved on a carcass, it's indicative of sexual assault, but it's mm -hmm. not. It's actually the decompositional process moving the clothing. Okay. Um, so, so then that makes the carcass even more um, accessible to scavengers. Sure. Well, yeah. that is a really good kind of segue into um, a break. And when we come back, I would love to hear um, some more about like what the specific research that you are currently doing is working on and um, yeah, maybe learn some more about clothing for pigs. See you all after the break. Did you know that we have a blog? Check out the Women in Archaeology website for a variety of blog posts as well as past episodes. Interested in supporting the podcast? From the website, you can check out our Patreon account and learn about the different ways to help support the blogging podcast. We can give you a cool sticker in return. Again, thank you for listening. Hi, everybody, and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we've been talking with Yvonne Chorlin about um, her work on scattered remains. We ended the last segment talking a little bit about uh, dressing up pigs and <laughs> studying what scavengers do with them. Um, and to start this segment off, um, Yvonne, I'd really love to learn a little bit more about the work that you're doing with the body farm in Canada um, and look at what kind, of what kind of questions you're trying to, to answer and what you're trying to learn. Okay, so um, the, the body farm in Canada or the decompositional facility in Canada is uh, run by Dr. Sherry Forbes. Mm -hmm. And she's now at the University of Windsor. And so I'm not actually working at the decompositional facility because like we discussed, um, I, I, I mean, there wouldn't be any scattering at the decompositional yes, facility because there's no scavengers allowed on the decompositional facilities. So um, the reason all this came about is because uh, law enforcement, their canine units, so the cadaver dogs that the mm -hmm. canines use, canine unit canine units use in law enforcement the dogs need to be trained on human scent you cannot train a dog on pig scent to look for humans it doesn't work that way you have to train them on human scent so the easiest way to get human scent is to go to a decompositional facility like mm -hmm. sherry's and that's where they train the dogs on human scent um, and because law enforcement with their um these lovely canine uh, dogs uh, come to the facility, these people are also doing a lot of searches for human remains. And the question is always, how far do we have to search to find the hum all the human remains and where do we search? Mm -hmm. And of course, That's a good question. Sherry, she's like, well, I don't know. <laughs> so she, you know, like any good researcher said, well, here's two wonderful questions coming directly from the community that I serve. Let's do some research and find out. So she started working with the OPP, the Ontario Provincial Police, and setting up some research sites, again, with pig analogs. Um, and 
setting them out with trail cameras, so wildlife cameras, to see what mm -hmm. scavengers are coming up. And they also had um, some little trackers. And these trackers, um, I think, were originally designed for people who had health issues, so like Alzheimer's or whatever. So if they wander off, you can find them. Okay. And so they, they had some of these trackers that were um, given to them and they placed them on certain parts of the pig. So let's say two per pig, you know, a forelimb and a hind limb or something else like that. Mm -hmm. And so mm -hmm. at least they could find, hopefully, where those limbs went. And so those, those uh, trials have been going on for a few years now. And then she wanted to expand across the country. So when it came to Alberta, she was hunting around for somebody with uh, biological anthropology training. Mm -hmm. And she got my name, and that's how I got roped in. So we've been doing the Alberta trials for a couple of years now. Um, we'll be coming into our third summer. And again, the reasons are just the the research questions are just where do the bones go, and how far do they go, and and how recent are we talking? Like, are are this, this being employed for like trying to figure out where to look for like cold cases, or is it like? you know, crimes that you think may have been committed in the last last year. I'm kind of curious as to, you know, how long, how old are bones are, like how long the taphonomic process has, has been going on? Is it just like looking for bones that have been like moved around or is it also like bones that may have been moved around 25 years ago and then have 25 years of like leaf litter on top of them? Or, you know, yeah, just like curious as to parameters, I guess. Okay, so the thing is, um, since we're... We're talking now. I haven't been doing this for 25 years. So sure. I wouldn't have a site that's 25 years old. So I could not directly address a cold case that has been cold for 25 years. Yeah, that's a great point. <laughs> right, right? <laughs> yeah. And that's part of the logistical issues of doing this research is that you want it directly applicable to a cold case. But the thing is, we can't we can't directly replicate those conditions. Number one, because we don't know the direct conditions of that cold case, because that would include climate, humidity, soil pH, all of those climatic conditions in the exact spot where that person was thought to have been deposited, we cannot replicate all that. And include mm -hmm. in that the postmortem interval. Like anything more than a couple of years, is, is very difficult to do in a research setting because that means that you have to have cameras out for a long time monitoring the scavengers. You have to go out, you know, every, every so often to see where the remains are, to track the remains, to map the remains so that you know where they're going. So all mm -hmm. these logistical concerns is very difficult to do in the long term. You're looking at a longitudinal study. And, and that kind of explains that why there are so many cross-sectional studies in the literature. There are a lot of cross-sectional studies in the liter literature based usually on casework done by um, forensic anthropologists or biological anthropologists working for forensic contexts. And so they've taken sort of, you know, their cases where they know where the remains ended up. Do they necessarily are trying to figure out where the where the body was originally deposited, not necessarily. So their objectives are a bit different, but it remains that, that a lot of the 
the literature is based around cross-sectional studies. We're attempting to do a longitudinal study. So, so far we've been letting remain, remain sit out for about a year. Okay. But is it directly, compa um, directly comparable to a cold case that's a year old? Well, no, because that cold case probably wasn't going to be situated exactly where we put the pig. Sure. And the climatic conditions, you know, around that cold case could be completely different than what we're dealing with. So we're doing the best we can with what we've got. And again, looking for those general patterns that may help, um, help give us some direction rather than giving us any specific answers. So along those lines, have you seen any contrasts between the two locations um, in Canada, the Ontario versus Alberta? I mean, I know that they're, you know, fairly different, but it's, you know, not as much of a contrast as like, say, the American Southwest and the American Northeast. It's, you know, a similar longitude. Um, but have you noticed any differences amongst the scavenger um, profile and how that impacts the carcass at all yet? Or I'm sure that's probably still part of what you're looking at. <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. The, the scavengers in, in Ontario are, are different than the ones we see in Alberta. And even within Alberta, we're seeing differences. Differences between Calgary and Edmonton. Um, and even just south of Calgary. We, we did, uh, we've got a couple studies going just south of Calgary and west of Calgary. And so, you know, even just that little variation um, just outside of Calgary is showing differences in scavengers. Um, one of the biggest differences between Ontario and Alberta are the vultures. Um, Ontario has uh, vultures, turkey vultures. Mm -hmm. We don't see those in Calgary. We do see turkey vultures in Edmonton. I didn't even know they were there. And I did my master's in Edmonton <laughs> on this topic. <laughs> I did not know that they were there. Um, so whether, you know, I didn't see them because I didn't have the technology to capture them. I don't know. Um, but yeah, definitely differences in scavengers. Um, Sherry is very keen to get a polar bear on camera. She's going to have to go up north for that because <laughs> those yeah. they don't yes. come down south. But <laughs> yeah, um, but we have had grizzly. We have had cougar. Um, the oh. cougar we saw just outside of Calgary at one of our, our sites um, late last year. And yeah, so definitely differences. And, and we're always surprised with the data we get back. Always surprised. And with that data you're getting back, do you feel like um, you're able to provide an even better set of um, like search ideas and whatnot for law enforcement? Well, again, we're, we're very we're very conscious that there are so many factors involved in this, and that we can only give information. Uh, relating to general patterns. So for instance, if a, you know, one of the first questions I would ask somebody who's, um, you know, found remains or they're going to be setting up a search is where is it? You know, cause that mm -hmm. would indicate to me, hopefully what the scavengers in that area might be. And then like mm -hmm. we were talking about before, um, now that we know something about how those, how some particular animals scavenge, then because we know the scavengers, we might be able to figure out um, based on their scavenging profile, the likelihood of where those remains might be, you know, how far they would have to search. 
um, direction, mm -hmm. maybe, maybe not, um, but definitely how far. Yeah. Nice. Hmm. That's really, really interesting. And I, and I understand there are definitely limitations on all that. And um, just, I, I'm genuinely curious, just like how, how much uh, more, like what are the other things you want to try to learn about? Um, what are the next uh, experience are you going to try to, put on like are you going to put on more of the little trackers on the limbs or like what are the other things you want to try to do just to get more interesting data well okay number one we're, we're swimming in data <laughs> just so you know we're swimming in data <laughs> we don't want any more data <laughs> um so Understandable. Uh, last year, we, we don't, in Alberta, we don't have access to the, the little trackers that they have in Ontario. Um, okay. So we had to figure out some sort of solution because we did want to try the trackers. Because How else are you going to figure out where these remains go? Like when they're going, you know, past sort of the, usually when we go out and search, let me backtrack for a little bit. Usually when we go out and search, it's a lot of the remains are concentrated around the original deposition point. And so, right. and it's, easy to search around that original deposition point because the, the the more you the further out you go the more area you're searching and therefore it's more yeah. difficult to find anything because you're getting into fatigue you're searching more area you know, all, all of that all that stuff so when you've got that initial point of deposition and you know where that is so when you know that original deposition point that's the point from which all the remains originated so it makes sense that any remains that you find will be concentrated around that so it's easier to search you're more likely to find more remains around that original deposition point mm -hmm. and the further out from that point you go the less likely the remains will be it'll be harder to find them because they'll probably be more spread out and who knows where they could, they could be anywhere, you know, in the countryside. Um, so we really needed to get the, figure out some sort of tracker situation for um, our Alberta study. So Sherry did some serious searching and she figured out these new trackers. We, we actually have to drill through the flesh and the bone and uh, put the tracker through and tie it on. Yeah. But even still, we're having, they're, they're radio controlled, so they're not, we had to be able to, to use the tracker where there isn't cell coverage, because believe it or not, mm -hmm. and even in this day and age, there are places in the world where you don't have cell coverage. Just putting that yeah. out there. <laughs> <laughs> so we needed to have a tracker that we could use someplace where there isn't cell coverage. Um, so they are, they're on a radio frequency. So we've got this nifty antenna. You, and this uh, sort of battery pack thing that you, you know, loop around your neck and you switch it to the frequency and then you have to go out and hopefully find the tracker. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, but that's hopefully pending that the tracker is still attached to the bone. Yeah. That, you know, um, you're, God knows how, how long you're going to be walking to find the tracker. And from what I understand too, um, it's a very, um, it takes a, a bit to get the, the knack of it. It's, it's not an intuitive, you know, kind of metal detector sort of uh, thing. Yeah, it, it, right. yeah it, it, it takes a bit. So, um, but so far we've had a tracker 
not related to a bone. So a loose tracker found at what, 473 meters from the original deposition points. Oh, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I read <laughs> case reports where, you know, remains can travel miles. Yeah. Which is just but a it, lot of ground to cover. Because when you think about like, what is the area of a circle? And there's, there's an exponential in there. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, can you imagine a circle that would encompass that 473 meters? That's a lot of area to, to search. Yeah. And that's if you know the original deposition point. And usually when, when search teams go out, they don't know where the original deposition point was. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So they could be starting from that 473 meter point where that remain was found and then working back to try to find the original deposition point where hopefully more remains are and where, you know, there might be a cache of potential forensic evidence. Are there certain elements that you found that tend to travel farther as far as related to the specific type of scavenger that will take stuff farther out? Say, like you mentioned, the South African leopard taking the entire carcass up a tree. Um, like are there, you know, if, if a coyote comes across it, is he more likely to grab a limb or something like that instead of, you know, smaller elements, or I don't know if there's a pattern yet that you've been able to see so far. Um, during my masters, I found that there's a a couple of variables. One is disarticulation sequence, Mm -hmm. which was actually first studied in archeological samples and decompositional stage. And um, the decompositional stage, I'm, I'm still you know, working on that, but yeah. pretty, pretty much the more a carcass is decomposed, the easier it is to pull something off and drag it away. Yeah. And that kind of ties into the disarticulation sequence. There is a sequence um, related to decomposition in which, uh, skeletal elements or kind of element packages um, will disarticulate as the carcass decomposes. So for example, um, if a carcass was decomposing and you pulled at the hand, like let's imagine a coyote pulling at a hand, um, it won't come apart at the wrist or the elbow, it'll come apart at the shoulder Mm because that's where it'll disarticulate first before the elbow or the wrist. So if you're pulling at the fingers, you're likely to come away with the entire arm and then the coyote can then run away with the, with the entire arm. Is that just because of the way the, the shoulder is, I'm touching my own shoulder at the moment, like just because of the, the way the, um, the bones would have been connected and the ligaments went out, that would be the weakest joint. That's exactly it. You know, because it's not that, you know, the the ball and socket joint that you've got in your your hip where the the Mm -hmm. femur articulates. Yeah. Um, So it it, it all depends on the structure of the joint and how well it's, you know, kind of situated in there. Like um, the mandible, um, where it articulates with the jaw, that's one of the first places to disarticulate because it's not a ball and socket joint. You know, it's not kind of wedged right in there. It needs to be mobile. So it's very... um, it quickly disarticulates, quickly decomposes, and that's um, one of the easiest, I guess, elements to to separate from the body is the mandible. Yeah, yeah. that's really cool. And I'm just—it makes me think. I mean, I know it, it's 
thinking um, like in a totally different um, set of remains and whatnot, just like with how the remains are so scattered in like Olduvai Gorge and, and whatnot, just how, why the remains are found the way they are and what are actually discovered. And it just makes me think about like, okay, well then is that why teeth or this one part of the skull are typically found as opposed to other parts is because of that disarticulation process. Yeah, that's part of it. I mean, but I mean, you, you probably know from working in archeology span that, you know, it isn't just about the disarticulation. If if you get a scavenger in there um, that Mm -hmm. is bound and determined to tear it apart, they're really hungry. Mm -hmm. Screw the disarticulation sequence. They're going to tear it (laughs) apart. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> good point. Very good point. <laughs> like when you're hangry, all bets oh, are yeah. Off. yeah. Yeah. Give me that T-bone, man. I'm getting in there. <laughs> um, that does bring us to the end of our second session. Um, this has been great. Always good to, to end on a laugh. Um, and we will see you after the break. Looking for other archaeology podcasts? There's so many to choose from. Why not try Archie Fantasies and bust myths surrounding ancient finds and people? Or learn about the study of animal bones and archae animals? There's also the great Go Dig a Hole and the Ark and Anth podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe to the Women in Archaeology podcast and all of these fun archaeology podcasts that are available on iTunes, Spotify, all over the place. Thanks for listening! and welcome back to the Women in Archaeology podcast. So far on today's episode, we've been chatting with Yvonne Chorlin about her work on scattered remains, um, what scattered remains are, some of the research that she's doing, etc. And now we're going to start talking about some of the kind of science communication stuff that she's doing in this segment. But Kirsten had a really excellent question during the break. So I'm going to let you kick it off with that. Yeah, and some of this just leads into it. Um, with the podcast that you've been doing, Yvonne, what are some of the fun or interesting stories that you've come across in in doing that um, podcast? I think I didn't know just how much fun the podcast to be like sure it's a lot of work as you probably know mm-hmm. especially the mm-hmm. post-production oh my god the editing mm-hmm. oh yes <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes. I had no idea how much work it would be but it, it is it's a lot of fun listening to these people and letting them tell their stories I mean and it's so different from the usual academic conference you know where people get up on the podium they've got 10 to 12 minutes sometimes you know 20 and they give their spiel on this specific little project and then you follow them up with you know later when they get off the podium and talk about you know very specific questions it's almost like the after the conference is done and you go down to the street to the pub and you sit around with the beer and all that stress is gone and you just get into it that's the podcast we get into oh, yeah. the juicy stuff about how they got to where they are, who they really are, what, why are they, why do they find this topic juicy, whatever their topic is, you know, really getting into that juice. That is some good stuff. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Yeah. So that's what the fun part is for me. Like, sure. You know, the topics are good. You know, they're all kind of centered around, you know, 
death in some way, shape or form, which is cool. I get along better with dead people, but you know, it's, it's, it's the, the why, how, why are other people attracted to their thing? Yeah. Yeah. That's what I love. Nice. Yeah. And so often like, yeah, those, you know, 10, 12, 15 minute conference presentations, it's never enough. Totally. Yeah, very true. Yeah. There's always questions, especially if it's a really good presentation. Um, it's just like, I want to get to know you because you seem cool because you've picked and <laughs> really dug into this really fascinating topic I never would have thought of. Like, how did you get to this point? Um, and that's a lot of fun. And I think I can speak for, you know, Emily and Chelsea, like, that's why we still do this. I mean, it's so fun to be able to talk to um, other people and especially the, the women in this field that are doing the thing and just the diversity of um, experiences and mm -hmm. research topics and just getting out there the interesting research that they're doing that not many people may you know, hear of and, and just being able to share that. Um, I don't know. It's amazing to be able to like nerd out. Yeah. <laughs> oh, totally. And allow other people to nerd out with you. It's like this exactly. great big nerd session. It's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it really is. So what kind of inspired you to start the podcast then? So I finished my master's in 2004, which, oh my God, is going to be a really long time ago now. Um, and I, I knew I was onto something back then. Um, cause it, it, it seemed like the only person that had studied anything regards to scattered remains and, and patterns thereof was Bill Hagland out of, um, Washington and yeah, with the Green River murders. And then since then, you know, very little had been done, but as soon as I started looking at it, I saw the potential, not just in you know, having a, however many lifetimes of doing research, you know, if I wanted to do research, you know, and be reincarnated and come back and do it again and again and again, I could, and because there's just mm -hmm. so many factors involved. Um, but also the potential to apply it in practical applications. I saw the potential and uh, it, it really bothered me that there was nobody else doing the research. There was nobody else asking the questions, or even if they were asking the questions, they weren't able to do it and kind of like I touched on before doing the longitudinal studies that's tough it requires commitment you got to be in it for the long haul but it is needed yeah and so and with funding <laughs> yeah funding what's that <laughs> I got so no much funding. funding these years you know a year or two years or three years if you're lucky mm -hmm. you don't have the ability to say I want to do a 20-year study of this exactly funding these days yeah and this is one of those areas too that that falls in between so the funding cracks is it is it science is it social science is it you know applied science is it pure science you know is it community driven is it pure reason like what is it it, it mm -hmm. falls into this amazing gray zone and i think the the main thing that got to me was I don't think people really understand the importance of this topic and how it impacted and could influence specifically forensic 
context, forensic investigations. Because, I mean, everybody talks about uh, when, you, when you already have the potential forensic evidence and analyzing that. They don't talk about actually getting the evidence. <laughs> they just, they, they're always talking about analyzing that evidence. Well, I want to talk about actually getting the evidence so that you can analyze it. Let's talk about the collection, shall we? And, and, and I really, I was, it just, it was a real bee in my bonnet that nobody seemed to be asking the questions. So I started the podcast just to increase awareness. I wanted to increase awareness and get the information out there in an accessible format. So I didn't want it to be sitting on a shelf behind a publisher's paywall, which is what a lot of scientific um, journal articles are. Yeah. They're sitting behind a publisher's paywall, which bugs me to no end. Um, or they're, you know, sitting in a report on somebody's shelf. Nobody's read the report. Nobody cares. Nobody has the time. So what is an easy, accessible format? Podcasting is a great way to do that now. And it can often be entertaining. So, hey, there's that bonus too. <laughs> oh, yes. So that's why I started the podcast. That's wonderful. I think that's been like a great like a lot of the folks who've created the different like archaeology, anthropology, different kinds of podcasts is that issue of accessibility. And you're, mm. you're totally right. It's such a great way to get people interested, get information out there in an accessible way. And I'm really glad you're doing it. It's a great podcast. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm like I said, I'm really enjoying it. I'm getting to meet all these new people that I wouldn't normally get to meet, you know, cold calling. Holy smokes. <laughs> it is scary <laughs> like with you guys you know it's like i'm just gonna put this out there and hopefully it won't end up in your junk box somewhere <laughs> oh yeah uh, we're in the I same really boat do... we're like this person seems cool would you like to yeah. join our podcast please, <laughs> please. and then you meet them and you have an amazing conversation and it opens up all these new ideas and avenues of thought and perspective mm -hmm. and then you yeah oh yeah, how can I include this in my own research and how I'm looking at things? And it's just like, what? Brain fire. <laughs> I will take this moment to pitch and say, if you're listening and you want to come on our podcast and I'm going to like go out on a limb and say Yvonne's podcast either, like send us an email. We love hearing from you. Absolutely. <laughs> yes, please reach out and contact me. Yeah. Well, and, and with that kind of thing, like, are there certain topics you're hoping to cover more of in the future with the podcast? I'm always open to hearing about new topics. I always put it out there that if you have something that you think should be on the podcast or that you'd like mm -hmm. to hear about, that you're more curious about, drop me a line because mm -hmm. I'm always searching for topics. topics. I'm always searching for people, um, mm -hmm. even as it is, like, compared to where I was you know, a year, two years ago, the podcast is expanding a little bit. You know, it's not just about scattered remains anymore. It's getting to be more about the dead. Um, I've talked mm -hmm. to uh, the Canadian casualty coordinator. Um, she works in uh, the Canadian military and she focuses on the repatriation, not the repatriation, because we're not like the U.S. Um, where, where, where soldiers, Canadian soldiers have fallen, um, we want to ID them. And let their next of kin know that they've been ID'd and bring them over ah. for a proper burial, all that kind oh, of stuff. So nice. she does that for Canadian contacts. On Monday, I just talked to her, 
her colleague in Australia who does the same thing, but the, the theater, the, the number of wars and the, the battles in the theater of war is completely different for Australia compared to Canada. And so, mm -hmm. you know, while the, my Canadian colleague is looking at mainly France and the Canadian soldiers that, that died in France, um, her Australian colleague is looking at Papua New Guinea, Japan, Korea, um, Italy, yeah. Turkey, wow. all over the place. Mm -hmm. and, yeah, and, and, and talking about, um, you know, just how respect for the dead is a, is a human thing to do. It, it's a cultural yeah. commonality. And so finding that common ground to cross cultures, to talk about the dead and, and how we respect them and how we're going to go forward in respecting them, that's now included in the podcast. Very cool. So it's just, yeah, nice. very interesting to see how things are evolving. And it sounds like with the, along with the podcast, you've been incredibly busy on getting your course set up as well. Oh my God. I need to like stop doing stuff for a while. <laughs> so busy. <laughs> yeah. The side hustles are taking over my life. Um, yeah. So I have a, a course on bone search and recovery. Um, it's a short course uh, aimed to Pretty much anybody who has not done a search, they've been invited to do one or they haven't done a search for a while. Anybody who needs quick training because those people who, usually those people who are involved with search and rescue, who are called to go out and search for human remains are not trained to search for human remains. As yeah. well, law enforcement who go on searches um, are not trained in how to search for human remains. And there is a difference. Mm -hmm. And so I've developed this course with that in mind. It's um, short, cheap, accessible. And nice. it's now available on my website, yvonnetrollin.com, under the Anthropology tab. So go have a look and give me your feedback if you want some more. I mean, of course, I've got all these plans in the works about, you know, how to make another course, make it bigger, broader, blah, 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 blah. Um, but this is where it starts. So, yeah, please go to my website and check it out. That's exciting. What other kinds of um, courses do you, are you dreaming about of creating in the future once you take a break from all the side hustles? <laughs> <laughs> take a break from the side hustles? What? That's just not possible. Um, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I've, I, I just finished putting up a whole um, whack of sort of informational videos. So along with the audio version of the, the Scattered podcast, I've also put together some little videos that kind of comprise the video version of the Scattered Podcast. And they're specifically looking at the scavenging study that I'm doing with uh, mm. Dr. Sherry Forbes. And so they're just, you know, 10 to 12 minute little videos on each site. And they're all, again, up on my website. And it, yeah, that's another Herculean labor of love that was. Um, yeah. And, you know, we might do something more with that, you know, branching out into other little informational videos like looking at damaged bone how can you tell you know <clears throat> uh you know trauma perimortem versus you know green stick fractures post-mortem versus uh scavenger effects on bone who knows mm. you know so all these ideas kind of swing around but yeah it's, it's a matter of getting sounds like there's just like some amazing psychom going on. Oh yeah, <laughs> big time. <laughs> which which so is so important, as we talked about earlier, is is making sure that stuff isn't just hidden in an ivory tower or on somebody's bookshelf. Yeah, 
Yes, absolutely. And it's not just hidden, but it's accessible and it's in a format that people can engage with because it's one thing to, you know, put it up on a website and, and nobody knows about it. Yeah. And, and that's one thing that I find academics are very good at. You know, they're very good at putting out the publications and, and hiding them in, in journals and putting them on shelves and letting them collect dust and nobody knows about it. Yeah. yeah. And, and so that's the question I'm, I'm kind of asking right now. If, you know, if you're doing all this amazing work, how amazing is your work if nobody knows about it? Yeah, it's that impact factor. Yeah. Yeah. But, but in, in a more applicable, broader sense, you know, it's not just the H factor. <laughs> 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 yeah there's um uh i'm sure um there's a couple of things that come to mind as far as um additional um stuff to scope out i'm sure you've heard of already but just listening to you talk about your research uh reminds me of um jason de leon's work on the southwest border I don't know if you're familiar with his stuff. Um, no, what has he done? Um, he works with taphonomy and site formation processes um, uh, al along the migrate migrant trail um, between Mexico and the U.S. Okay. Uh, and studies Latin American migration and human remains lost um, in the in that journey. Um, and he's written uh, a public uh, or a, more of a um, public science, popular science, there we go, uh, book as well. Um, that seems really interesting that I've had my, it's been on my reading list for a while. I just haven't gotten around to it called The Land of Open Graves. Um, okay. And his work is really interesting um, and kind of falls along like, you know, a similar, you know, totally different research but you know like you're saying there's not a whole lot of research on scattered remains and that's one as crude and as horrible as it sounds the mass grave work that has been done on a lot of the conflicts over in croatia serbia now the ukraine yeah. mm -hmm. you know um a, a lot of scavenging and scattered research is coming out of there i mean Yes, they're, they're, they're mass graves, usually they're, they're burials, but um, more research on taphonomic processes, um, identifying individuals um, through commingled remains, that sort of stuff. There's some lovely things yeah. coming out of those tragedies. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, some of it is, is you know, even though they're, they're graves, they're not often at a depth that would protect them from scavenging, so I can Absolutely. see how that would be an issue but that's i feel like in at least it, probably a couple of cases if not many cases one of the things that can help find where those are located you know that they can help indicate you know presence yeah it could definitely show the like and we didn't really talk as much about this side of it i mean just a little bit but how your work and then a, a lot of these um the type of work with the mass graves and scattered remains is the fact that it can help bring closure to yeah. the families of the, of the individuals. It can bring um, people to justice um, mm -hmm. can with the case with Ukraine can um, provide proof of war crimes. So it's not just finding these individuals. Your the work helps 
bring a, the closure and peace and justice along with that. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the the reasons why the podcast, my podcast has, has a few episodes now talking about the next of kin and talking about how we're respecting the dead, because we often, especially forensic investigations, you know, you watch true crime, you know, series on Netflix and you listen to podcasts and we're very caught up in the actual crime. And mm-hmm. we have this tendency to forget just how it impacts the next of kin. And it's not just the, the disappearance, um, but it's not knowing what happened to their loved one, but also the impact of closure, of knowing. And that has an amazing effect on next of kin. And that's what we're, yeah. I think that we're really seeing, or it's, it's brought attention with these tragedies, with the mass graves, is bringing the attention to the next of kin because the next of kin are standing right there beside these mass graves as the anthropologists and archaeologists and whoever are excavating the remains. They're right there at the side of the grave. There is no you know, fence line. There is no police line. The next of kin are right there watching them as they excavate these mass graves. And also the anthropologists and, and workers are talking to the next of kin to try to figure out who these individuals were in the mass graves. There's a, there's a direct connection that in archaeological context, we don't get that. And in forensic investigations, we're very separated from. But in dealing with these conflicts where there are mass graves, there is that direct connection. Yeah, and you you really need to be respectful of the deceased, their next of of kin, the family, the friends, the communities that are around. Um, Absolutely. And, And number one, we weren't trained in that. You know, it's not part of our academic training. And, and, I find that people who, who work in archaeology and anthropology aren't the best people people. So <laughs> That's not, no. yeah. <laughs> asking us to interact with, um, you know, regular folk, that's a bit of a stretch sometimes. <laughs> so. Yeah. yeah. It is, it so is it's a whole rude. world. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, public outreach, that's a kind of interaction that we're all doing. Oh, yes. It's a learning uh, curve, right? Yeah, and we are unfortunately at the end of our um, our third and final segment. But Yvonne, thank you so much for joining us today. It's been really, really fascinating um, chatting with you. So yeah, thanks for reaching out. Cold calls are scary, but we really appreciate that that you emailed us. It was great. Um, thank you. This we hope you come on again. Absolutely, just ask. Yeah. And um, to anyone who is listening, we will put links to Yvonne's website podcast in the show notes. If you like what you've heard here, please do subscribe to her podcast, subscribe to ours. You can also find us at um, www.womeninarchaeology.com or on Twitter at WomenArchies, on Mastodon at womenarchies at mastodon.social. I think I'll put that link in the show notes as well. That was a recent <laughs> recent addition. 
You can reach out to us at womeninarchaeology at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Um, if you want to come on the show, please do. And a massive thank you to um, all of our Patreons as well for supporting the podcast and the work that we're doing. Until next time, have a great day. Bye. Bye.